Ireland does science in a certain way, uh, the US does science in a different way, the UK, Germany and others, there are different cultures of science and the exposure to as diverse an array of uh, scientific cultures, if you like, I think gives you the broadest sense of how to succeed because science is a global business and, and we have to understand how it's carried out globally. You're listening to the Class Acts podcast, an initiative of UCD Conway Institute, a research institute based in University College Dublin. My name is Elaine Quinn. In this podcast series, we want to introduce you to scientists at the heart of fascinating new research here in the Institute. What motivated our researchers to pursue a career in science? What journeys have they taken along their career path? What areas of research are they pursuing? How have their careers been influenced by mentorship along the way? Some of these scientists have long established research groups in the Institute, while others have just begun to build their own teams here in UCD. All of them have spoken about their work in our weekly Conway Lecture and Seminar Series, or CLASS for short. Our host is Dr Owen Cummins, Assistant Professor of Physiology in UCD School of Medicine and a Conway Fellow. Owen leads a research group studying how carbon dioxide and oxygen affect cellular behaviour. Owen is also passionate about educating the next generation of scientists and medics and actively contributes to equality, diversity and inclusion initiatives within UCD. He was inspired to create the Class Acts podcast to share the many and varied backgrounds and journeys taken by Conway researchers on their routes to scientific success. In episode one, Dr. Owen Cummins talks with Professor Cormac Taylor, Professor of Cellular Physiology in the UCD School of Medicine, who's a Conway Fellow. Cormac recounts his early career in science and postdoctoral years in Harvard Medical School before he returned to Ireland to pursue research in the area of hypoxia and inflammation. Cormac shares his experiences as a mentor and a mentee and discusses the role of scientists in the age of fake news. Cormac also shares his musical talents with an original composition inspired by the COVID lockdown. So this morning, we're joined by Professor Cormac Taylor. You're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing this morning? Thanks very much, Owen. Uh, very good. It's a beautiful, sunny morning in Dublin. The restrictions are starting to lift, so the only way to go is up. Excellent. So this positivity is in the air. Absolutely. Today is a day of positivity. Good day to get me. <laughs> so if you don't mind, I'd like to start off a little bit by asking you about your uh, your early career in science. So I know from your, your CV that you've a, a background in pharmacology in, in UCD, where you did a, a BSc and then a, and then a PhD. Um, I'm, I'm just sort of wondering about what next... Uh, in terms of your career. So what were your motivations in terms of, of tr trying to stay in science? Where did you go? Um, and, and what was your experience? Because this, this is really something that I think a lot of graduate students and postdocs are, are thinking about at this stage of their career. There's a lot of different elements to, to consider and, and take into account. What, 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 was, what were your thoughts and motivations when you were making that transition? So I was really, um, I have to say, I'm, I'm a person who, who didn't really know what they wanted to do in the beginning. 
so for example, when I completed my leaving cert, I really only chose science because it seemed like I wasn't committing myself to a career of any uh, concrete description because uh, I was really, um, you know, I was unsure, as I think most 18-year-olds should be, of what they want to do with the rest of their lives. I'm always a little bit suspicious of anyone who comes up to me uh, prior to the leaving cert and tells me they know what they want to do for the rest of their lives. I, I heard somebody say recently that most of those people end up having the worst midlife crisis you, you can possibly imagine when they realize at the age of, you know, 40-something that actually maybe this isn't what I wanted to do. So, uh, so I picked science in the first case as a, uh, because of its broadness um, and the possibility of uh, the multiple possibilities coming out of it. I proceeded through a bachelor in, in UCD, a bachelor's in, in, in science, and uh, chose pharmacology as my main, my main calling. It was actually a couple of years into the degree before I found something I really liked. Uh, and, and that turned out to be pharmacology. I'll say up front, I was like, a, I was not a star student. I kind of got through my BSc by the skin of my teeth with a 2-1. I, I, I still thank my lucky stars or at least a couple of the faculty in pharmacology for bumping me up. Uh, but it was enough to get me into a, a PhD program with uh, Alan Baird in, in, in pharmacology in UCD, who was a great mentor, uh, a Scotsman who's a, a wonderful pharmacologist and taught me the rigors of how to do good experiments uh, and how to uh, how to find joy in an experiment that actually tells you something new, something that nobody ever knew before. And I found this a fascinating idea, just the, the simple generation of knowledge that didn't exist before, regardless of, of what its utility might be, but just the actual, uh, as, as, a, as a colleague of mine, Catherine Godson said, every time she opens an orange and she thinks, wow, I'm the first person to see inside this orange. Like it's, it's, a, it's that feeling of discovery of knowledge and newness that, 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 that really drew me into science. Uh, after after my PhD, uh, I realized I had spent most of my, in fact, all of my formative years in, in Dublin and I needed to go somewhere else. And, you needed uh, a change. I needed a change. And, and as I left UCD, I waved my fist at that water tower saying it'll never pass. Uh, I will never pass beneath its shadow again, this side of the, of the grave. And I was delighted to be moving on to something different. I was tired of Ireland. I was tired of everything. Uh, I needed a change. Um, and I moved on to do a postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, um, in, in Boston, actually, in, in, in Harvard University. So, so tell me a little bit about that. So how, how did you come to find yourself in Boston? Was it just the case that you, you wanted to get out of Ireland and anywhere will do and a nice body of water in between you and the, and the water tower is, is helpful? Or was it a particular desire to go to, you know, obviously one of the world's most prestigious universities and develop your career that way? Well, escaping the water tower was definitely a, a major. It felt like some sort of a big brother or, or, a, or a more a Lord of the Rings eye on top of this tower looking down. I needed to get away from that for sure. But uh, but no, I, I um, again, with the advice of, of, of my, my mentor, Alan Baird, I, I went to a conference about a year before completing my PhD. Uh, and prior to that conference, arranged to meet six or seven of the, the leaders in the field um, of uh, uh, epithelial biology, which is what I was working on at the time. Um, and the last of these people, and I met some very prestigious, uh, uh, you know, world leaders in research. These Harvard professors, uh, all of whom were very, very prestigious, uh, track record, famous scientists. And actually, the last person I met was a, a guy called Sean Colgan, who was a very young guy. He was just out of his own postdoc, starting his own faculty position uh, uh, in in Harvard. All of these people that I met were at multiple different institutions. It was they weren't all all Harvard or anything. And um, I just gelled with this guy, and and it was really. Uh, the personality of the principal investigator with whom I went to work with that drove my decision to go, not the institution. It helped that it was Harvard and it was a place that that, that is associated with uh, with um, international prestige, but it was absolutely not the case that I made the decision based on the institution, but more on the 
on the investigator. Uh, and I look back and I know having been there for five years that many people did go for the, the Nobel Prize winning lab in, in, in the Harvard institution uh, and did not have a good experience because you know, at that stage, the PI is already traveling around the world, PI being principal investigator, the boss, if you like, is already traveling around the world giving lectures and maybe uh, the scientific star is already on the wane. So, so in a nutshell, my best piece of advice would be to try to identify a young, uh, upwardly mobile principal investigator who is uh, going to take you along with them on a journey through the scientific, uh, uh, um, uh, to the scientific stars, as it were. And that sort of that sort of personal chemistry, that sort of uh, affinity that you found with Sean on on a personal level, did, did that supersede sort of the the very specific nuts and bolts that Sean was doing? Or I mean, obviously he was still working in epithelial uh, physiology, which was your area of interest. But would you say that it was it was more the the chemistry and the personality rather than the subject area, or was it a, a marrying of the two? Or did you get on with him well because he was working or passionate about an area that you were already passionate about? It was um, when we met, we went and we had a beer as most great scientific uh, partnerships, discoveries and else else usually starts in a bar somewhere with the beer. Um, and what I found was that we had a great affinity for each other personally. We became very good and we are, are, are great friends to this day. Um, but I do remember sitting there for two hours and the time barely felt like it was passing. Um, and we didn't talk so much about what we both did, but, but we, by what the big questions were. What were the unanswered questions at, at the time? What were the, uh, what were the interesting things to, to study? And that really opened up my mind that this was somebody I could work with who wanted to ask new questions, wanted me to ask new questions, not that I would go in and be prescriptive and have a list of things to do when I went into the lab. So it was really this open-mindedness that attracted me to him the most. So it sounds like, you know, you're, you're definitely afforded a degree of freedom in terms of your, your thought and freedom in terms of your, your research activities um, whilst you're in Harvard. Do you think that was a key element of the success, sort of being empowered to take ownership for some of these projects and given the opportunity to, to go and run with them? Absolutely. I think to this day, my mentorship style um, involves giving individuals, be they undergraduates, postgraduates, postdoctoral fellows who come into my lab, the opportunity to develop their own hypothesis, uh, to guide them through the, well, first of all, telling them whether or not, or, or, or uh, helping them discover whether or not it's an interesting uh, and tractable hypothesis uh, to investigate. Uh, but when I have identified with them a project that they, you know, that they have come up with, a question that they have come up with, I see it as my job to guide them through that to the point where they don't need me anymore. And that's, I remember when I left Sean's lab, the day I left was not because I was tired or because I ran out of grant funding or because I did everything I, I, I had wanted to do, but because I realized one day uh, in the healthiest possible way that I didn't need him anymore to do my own research. I had been allowed to and given the space to identify and pursue my own hypothesis um, and uh, by the end of the training period, I was able to do that on my own. I didn't need somebody else to do it for me. And, and that kind of training is not that common in science. Too many people, I think, are told what to do um, from the time they go in in order to get that paper that they, that they, they, they want um, without being given the opportunity to develop their own and have ownership of their own, their own work. I think I think that's a re I think that's a really interesting point because I think a lot of uh, early career researchers are are still stuck trying to make that decision about whether it's the best idea to go and try and and 
pitch up in a, in a prestigious uh, university, maybe have the pressure to try and deliver a big marquee paper while they're there with the hope to, to maybe returning at some point. Do you, do, you, do you think that the sort of the well-worn path of a, an Irish PhD student or a postdoc traveling over to the US to the, the big notable universities is still the best way to progress? I mean, obviously you've been very successful and, and, and many others have been following that path, but at what cost? What about some of the, the people we don't hear about who, who haven't been successful and, and hasn't worked out for them? I'm sure you've had friends and colleagues and peers and students where, where that has maybe not worked out quite so well. What, what's the recipe for, for making that transition as successful as possible? Yeah, well, um, if I can har harbor back just to the first part of the question, I had the honor recently of uh, interviewing Peter Ratcliffe, the 2019 Nobel Prize winner of medicine. And uh, I, th I thought it was a bit striking with at the end of his, uh, his talk when I asked him, what's your best advice you can give to, to young scientists aspiring to, to, to do well in the, in the scientific sphere? And he said, just make sure you have your own idea. Science is packed full of people, be they reviewers of grants, reviewers of papers, principal investigators, other people who, who will try to get you to pursue their ideas or to do their research. Um, but if your guiding thought is uh, from the beginning to develop your own ideas, then I think that this is, this is a great guiding principle um, uh, in terms of, of, of a successful career in science. Um, with regard to your question about the pathway, the well-worn pathway, um, I think diversity is incredibly important in science um, in, in all of its manifestations, not only diversity in terms of um, uh, cultural, racial, and um, uh, sexual identity, diversity in terms of components of the lab. I think a diverse environment is really, really important uh, in order to get the best we can out of, out of a lab, but also diversity in terms of your own um, uh, 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 training, if you like. So getting exposure to different environments. Uh, Ireland does science in a certain way. Uh, the US does science in a different way. The UK, Germany, and others, there are different cultures of science. And the exposure to as diverse an array of uh, scientific uh, cultures, if you like, I think gives you the broadest sense of how to succeed. Because science is a global business. It's not an Irish business. It's not a, a Western business. It's a global business. And, and it, we have to understand how it's carried out globally. Apologies, that's a bit of a long way around to saying, yeah, I think it is important to get diversity. Sure, and I, I think that's that's maybe something people can can look out for if they are sort of uh, courting different labs around the place, looking for that that diverse element. I know that some some labs uh, internationally are are very homogenous in terms of the the sort of population and the and the the ethnic groups within them, and you know that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's certainly not necessarily a, a, a diverse environment either. And then obviously, maybe you've alluded to your, yourself, if possible, try and have some sort of um, connection or ideological connection or personal connection with the with the supervisor in in kind because people who've had a track record of, of nurturing their their students or their postdocs who've gone before that's that's a good sign that you know that you're likely to be treated well in that, that environment also so that's, absolutely that's really and, and, and just to underscore that point and I sort of referred to it in the last question I really cannot um, emphasize the importance of uh, diversity uh, within a group. Um, it has, and I think, um, and and as I've said, it, it, it applies to all all uh, uh, walks of life, if you like, in terms of people coming into the lab. Um, and what I have found is that the, uh, our lab was so 
informed on a scientific level by having people coming in from different cultures. We have had um, uh, postdocs from and postgraduate students from Cameroon, from India, from Ireland, from Spain, from Germany, uh, currently Ukraine and Malaysia. I, I just can't tell you how important it is to um, uh, to have an open and liberal uh, uh, approach, if you like, to hiring into a lab, because that diversity fuels inquisition. It fuels friendship and interact uh, 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 camaraderie within the lab. And uh, it also makes it a lot of fun. And, you know, if it's not fun, then it's not worth doing at all. So Cormac, I think it's fair to say that you've spent uh, the majority of your research career working in the field of, uh, of hypoxia research. Can you, can you maybe just uh, describe to me what, what the field of hypoxia research is about or, or what is hypoxia for, for those of us who aren't familiar with it? So, so basically, Owen, hypoxia is uh, the condition which arises when oxygen levels drop in the body. And I don't think uh, I have to explain to anyone who's listening that if you don't have enough oxygen in your body, you're, you're in serious trouble. You're going to uh, keel over and die pretty quickly. Um, but as it turns out, because in nature, uh, we very often in, encounter conditions where the oxygen levels in our blood drop, uh, such as when you go to high altitude to the top of Mount Everest or or, or when uh, blood supply to a tissue is reduced or when you go for, for, for extreme exercise, the oxygen levels in your body can drop. And um, so not maybe not surprisingly is as we've evolved, we've developed the capacity uh, to adapt to low oxygen concentrations by trying to increase the amount of, of oxygen that goes to a tissue. So, so the field of hypoxia really was um, was designed around trying to understand how do we adapt to low oxygen concentration. I think a good example is if a mountain climber uh, went immediately to the top of Mount Everest, then they would die from largely suffocation. There's not enough oxygen up there. But actually, a mountain climber doesn't do go directly to the top, even if they could. They go to base camp where their body adapts by producing more red blood cells to be able to go to higher and higher altitudes. So um, it's the mechanisms, the way in which these our, our cells adapt to low oxygen to help us survive that it has been the area that, that I've been working in for the last 20 years or so. Great, it's a really interesting topic. And it reminds me of sort of uh, endurance athletes going off on their altitude training in advance of the, the Olympics. We saw a lot of stories of people going away at this time of year, try and get some warm weather, try and get some altitude, boosts that oxygen carrying capacity and, uh, and hopefully well, improve I, the performance. I have to tell you, Owen, our, our field inadvertently produced some of the most potent performance enhancing drugs <laughs> that have been known to the cycling and athletics industry. So that's one of the, uh, the sort of dirty secrets of the hypoxia field. Well, if, if, they, if they work for life, they can probably be uh, uh, repurposed for uh, for more nefarious gains, unfortunately. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so, okay, so, so that's what hypoxia is about. So you were working in Harvard uh, as a postdoc in Sean Colgan's lab, working mainly on epithelial physiology. So how how did you become interested in in hypoxia from from that background? What's the what's the link between the two? Because hypoxia was really an emerging field, I think, around the around the sort of the the late nineteen. 1990s, uh, heading into the early 2000s. Well, I'd I'd like to say that it was some <laughs> I'd like to say that it was some glorious insight, but sometimes uh, life just interferes with you. And uh, yeah, we were working in the intestinal tract and epithelial cell biology, um, not really anything to do with hypoxia. And then Sean, for his first uh, faculty position, actually got a job in the Department of Anesthesiology in Brigham and Women's Hospital in the Harvard Medical Complex. Um, and the anesthesiologists are really interested in, in oxygen because they want to keep their 
patients well oxygenated while they're asleep kind of understand sure. that. Um, and uh, so at that time, uh, the, the professor of anesthesiology was a man called Simon Gelman, uh, and he uh, sort of suggested to Sean that maybe we should look at how hypoxia plays a role in the, in the gastrointestinal tract. I have to say, I was just fascinated by the basic question, how do cells deal with low oxygen levels? So uh, I was a little bit agnostic as to any kind of practical application of this. Um, and uh, the sort of coming together of you know, what seemed like a really interesting biological question with a sort of a nudge from the departmental head in that direction, um, made myself and Sean go for one of our, our uh, beers, our usual beers, it was never one, um, where we started to think about hypoxia in the gastrointestinal tract, and particularly in the context of diseases like inflammatory bowel disease and Crohn's disease, which is what we've had a, a long-standing interest in. Um, and then um, basically Sean made some, in his lab, made some really pioneering discoveries that when, a, when an intestine becomes inflamed in these diseases, it also becomes hypoxic. It's kind of like taking your gut to the top of Mount Everest. And if you can promote adaptation in the intestinal tract, then um, potentially you can, you can reduce the amount of inflammation. So, so we weren't really looking at this from a, a practical application point of view, but more just about how does the gut respond when uh, when the oxygen levels drop. Now, of course, later on, that became a, 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 a practical uh, application with potentially a drug uh, uh, coming close to the market. But but at the moment, um, at the time, it was just a basic biology question. So a key fundamental biological question of, of interest that turned out to be something that you'd pursue in one way or another for the yeah. for the next 20 years or so. Yeah, I spent I spent three years of my life just starving cells of oxygen and looking at what they did. And they didn't die. They responded. They adapted. It's fascinating. Brilliant. So, so the, I mean, many many of our, our listeners might be aware that the, the Nobel Prize uh, for Physiology of Medicine in 2019 was awarded to uh, Sir Peter Ratcliffe. Uh, Bill Kalin and Greg Semenza for their discoveries, uh, their their basic molecular discoveries relating to the oxygen sensing pathway, which you which you outlined in relation to high altitude uh, acclimatization. And so it must have been really exciting uh, going to the meetings and being part of the field as these seminal discoveries were being made. I know what a what a journey to take on. Like it was it was amazing. Like the early the early conferences and meetings we went to, um, there would be thirty maybe fifty people just sort of generally interested in the area. Uh, the three guys you mentioned, Greg, uh, Bill, uh, and Peter, are extraordinarily rigorous in terms of uh, you know attending meetings and questioning people and putting people under the gun. And and as a result of that, uh, I think a really healthy environment of uh, research involved evolved around this area. Uh, but yeah, we'd be sitting in in the. This is going to sound terrible. Sitting in the bar, talking to the guys about uh, about research, um, with no no idea whether what we were doing was even interesting from a, 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 a application point of view. Uh, and of course, um, you know, Greg was the man who identified the hypoxia inducible factor, and Bill and Peter identified how low oxygen levels drive that transcription factor, which governs this adaptive response to hypoxia. Uh, and uh, sitting, I was giving a talk in Siena, uh, in Italy, uh, a couple of years ago, just before, uh, when I thought traveling was, was, was something we could take for granted. Um, and I tuned in to find out who won the Nobel Prize that day. And to my absolute uh, delight i saw my three uh, colleagues getting getting awarded this award and 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 uh, you know it, it, it's a real example of why we should be looking and funding basic research because 
Um, these guys did not know what the application of what they were investigating would be later on. It turns out that it's a drug that's been approved in the clinic for the treatment of a very serious condition. Um, but at the time, they were just interested in how cells respond to hypoxia. And um, and, and I think that, that uh, uh, you know, to go from the 30 to 50 people at a, at a very minor conference somewhere in, in Europe to what we actually hosted in Dublin in um in 2014, I think it was, where we had over 500 people coming together to, to, you know, to to discuss this area of research, really shows you how the field blossomed, and uh, uh, it was very, very proud and very excited and, and very honoured to be part of the whole story. Oh, it's great. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the the adage: it takes a takes a village to raise a child, and I think it probably takes a a, a vibrant uh, research community to to help nurture the, the the those key discoveries that that were made by the by the likes of Ratcliffe, Kalen, and uh, Kalen and Semenza. That's great. So Cormac, um, we've touched on some elements of this already, the, the, the concept of, of mentorship, and I'm really interested in, in hearing your thoughts as a, a Nature Award winner for, uh, for mentorship. So at the moment, there's currently a, a big push towards, uh, rightly, I think, towards promoting mentorship for researchers at all stages of their career, not just to early career uh, researchers, but uh, established researchers also. Um, you've mentioned uh, a little bit the influence of uh, Alan Baird and, and Sean Colgan in your career. So, so what is it about your interactions with Alan and Sean that you think makes for, for a good mentor? Or what were some of the best elements of their mentorship that you've tried to apply in your own career? I think one of the... So the first thing I'd say is that Alan and, and Sean as mentors to me were both quite different in, in their approach to mentorship. Um, but the common thread that they had, which I, 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 I tried to carry myself, is that they both passionately cared about the science that we were doing to the point where it was always published. The work was always published. This was something that they were doing because of the real interest in science, not necessarily for career progression or, or promotion or anything like that. It was about a real interest in the science. Um, and also, I would say with both Alan and Sean, I was very lucky in having two people who really cared about the individuals who were working in their lab. Um, I had personal relationships with both of them. Um, we could talk both about science and about life. And um, they were both always uh, had an open door policy to me. I never, ever remember having to make an appointment to see a mentor, which was is, is, a, great, is, is a great thing to, to have. Um, the third, if you like, uh, arc, uh, the third uh, uh, part of the, the trinity of mentorship, that sounds a bit religious, but you know what I mean, um, which came into my life a little bit later on uh, after I finished my postdoc with Sean. And I was, you know, triply lucky to have um, a Hugh Brady kind of come into my life. He's uh, uh, He was a, a medical um, doctor who was a researcher also in Boston, Harvard University. That's how I, I, I came in contact with him. Uh, and Hugh really helped mentor me through the very difficult transition between the completion of the postdoc and the and the establishment of an independent research group, um, we did that in 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 the early two thousands when um, <laughs> I came back to the the bowels of the Matter Hospital, which was not exactly the most uh, attractive place to carry out research, having spent five years in the most prestigious research institution in the world. But I realised that in order to go forward, sometimes you have to uh, um, uh, move in, in uh, you know move to an environment which 
which is new and which is one in which you can blossom. And that was certainly one that I could. I remember Hugh saying to me, just think state of the art research institute. Uh, it'll be there in five years, which, you know, was a leap of faith, which I was willing to take with him. And he was an incredible mentor to me all the way through my, 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 my faculty career, if you like. And he was, he was really, um, he was really vital in that. But mentorship at its core has to have caring about the person that you're mentoring. You know, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment, but I think that what I realize now that I didn't realize at the time, and maybe Alan and Sean and Hugh all realized this, and I, I just learned it later on is that, you know, when it comes to retirement, um, it's going to be the people who you've mentored, the people who you've trained, the people who you've helped uh, along the way, be they undergraduates, postgraduates, postdocs, or, or other faculty members who will be your greatest legacy. They will, they will be what, what, what lasts and what gives you joy uh, 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 towards the end of your career. And um, I, I'm fortunate enough at the, uh, the young age of 50 to have realized this. Uh, I look forward to mentoring in the next 15 or 20 years and, and hopefully reaping some of the rewards with a couple of free meals and free beers from, <laughs> from my mentees in years to come. But the personal relationship is vital. You have to like the person and the person has to like you. I, th I think that's a I think that's a really important uh, and interesting point because some of the suggestions might be you know in this uh, this culture where we're encouraged to to seek mentorship and advice to maybe just go and try and identify the the perfect example of of where you would might see yourself in five or ten years time or the most successful or highest publishing individual that may not necessarily make for the best mentor for an individual you have to have that. Uh, some sort of relationship uh, in terms of at least having a, a kindred spirit. Uh, and it can probably be difficult in some cases to try and, and make, those, uh, make those sort of personal relationships if you don't know the individual very well at the beginning. So do you, do you find that mentorship evolves over time? Well, I think, uh, yes, absolutely. And I think that, 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 um, that I, I always, sort of the principle of mentorship for me is that you treat all people equally, but no people the same. Uh, everybody is an individual and requires different types of, of, of mentorship. Uh, so absolutely, your capacity to be a good mentor evolves. I don't think it ever actually reaches a pinnacle. It's just something you get better at the more you do and the more you experience. Um, you know, the final, if you like, at this stage level of mentorship for me are the colleagues that I have. We mentor each other all the time. I have wonderful colleagues, people like Catherine Godson, who, you know, we discuss on a daily basis um, our, our, our students, our postdocs, ourselves. We mentor each other as well. And, um, and I think uh, it's absolutely an evolving process. It, 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 it doesn't reach a peak, at least not yet. No, I, I think that that's great. It's really important to hear as well that this is something that's that's ongoing. You don't reach a certain peak or threshold in your career at which point you have nothing nothing left to to gain from other people's insights. That they were constantly learning and evolving and adapting and sharing experiences and supporting and, and nurturing and, and caring for each yeah. other, as as you said uh, quite rightly. Well, one of the things I have to say that the process of mentorship has taught me, and this is something about myself, I'm delighted that I found out. And it wasn't always clear to me that I was going to be this kind of person. In fact, at times I would think I was I was quite uh, ambitious in terms of my own sort of trajectory and 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 um, thought that all things must have a positive impact on, on me directly, measurable. Um, but one of the things that I'm really delighted to find out in, in middle age is that I can actually derive huge amounts of joy from other people's successes, but even if they don't directly affect me. And I think that an, a good mentor should feel that way towards the mentees that, that, that he or she is, is, is supporting. 
yeah, so sort of to give without expecting, but then, you know, potentially to have, ha be able to enjoy the, the rewards or the success of the, of the mentees down the line. Exactly. It's really nice. Cormac, I just want to change tact a little bit and, and talk to you about truth in the context of, of science. So, so we live in a time um, where lies are actively perpetuated and spread widely across all sorts of, of different media. What I really want to know is like, what do you think the scientific community has, what role do you think the scientific community has to play in holding people to account and for debunking falsehoods? In many cases, it's sometimes people who should know better that are helping to perpetuate um, sort of lies or, or misinf misinformation. So what, what role do you think the science community has in, in terms of sort of being the, the flag, flag bearer for, for truth? This is a very pertinent um, and very important question, I believe, at the moment. Probably the most important question in science, um, but also one of the most important societal questions that, that we have on a global, on a global level. Um, the misuse and politicization of science, which has occurred, particularly uh, in the context of uh, climate change, and more recently, the um, COVID-19 pandemic, um, I really think that the, the politicization of science and the utilization of mistruths and the misrepresentation of science um, has raised one of the greatest challenges uh, that we've seen in, 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 in the history of science. Um, we don't have to look too far to some of the leading countries in the world, the leading purveyors of great science over many, many decades and indeed centuries um, have uh, uh, started to politicize science and to use what we call wedges, you know, misinformation and cherry picking of science in order to support political or economic agendas. Um, and this cannot be allowed to go on. I, uh, in re and response to your question, the scientific community has to take responsibility for um, promoting evidence based decision making and policy uh, 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 making in, in, in government. Um, a good example is some of the misinformation that's been peddled in relation to vaccines. Um, you know, if you scour the scientific literature, you can always find something to uh, uh, support a, um, uh, an extreme view. Uh, or even a completely false view. Uh, a good example is 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 in in the case of vaccinations. The overwhelming evidence in the most high quality studies that have been carried out have demonstrated the effectiveness of vaccines, the effectiveness indeed of the COVID nineteen vaccine, um, in in terms of uh, reducing hospitalizations, morbidity, and mortality in these diseases. Yet. Um, you know, we have seen science being misused and abused in order to make spurious arguments which go against the, uh, the overwhelming body of evidence. And I think that um, a large part uh, of, of the blame in this comes uh, from the media who promote, uh, you know, science as if it was some sort of a book that you go to. Science is a debate. Um, it's entirely appropriate for people to to hold all sorts of uh, opinions based on, on what they interpret of the science being. But, um, but it's also vitally important to uh, take into account the quality of the science and the volume of the evidence that supports one argument or another. Um, and not to, not, to, uh, not to shy behind, oh, well, this is a simple two-sided argument. So I think the media has a really important role to play in um, 
in how they determine expertise. I've been shocked what I've seen during the coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, on um, the lack of attention paid to the expertise of some of the experts. You know, an expert is only an expert in what they're an expert in. If that's not too many experts. No, so, I, um, I, I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, there's been there's been many commentators, particularly within the the most recent uh, pandemic, uh, many of which you have expertise in a variety of different areas from public health to immunology and, and, and whatnot. And you, you get the feeling that in, in, in some cases, maybe they're, they're speaking a little bit beyond the, the area in which they're best placed Absolutely, to speak. So do you, do you think the, the scientists have a responsibility to sort of overtly declare their area of expertise and then define anything beyond that as maybe being a, an educated, uh, opinion or personal opinion? Absolutely. I think that that's, that's, that's exactly what's missing at the moment. I get very uncomfortable when I hear, you know, um, uh, a molecular neuroimmunologist talking about travel restrictions or a public health official talking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, neutrophil activation. You know, I think people should just stick to the area they truly have expertise in. And they should have to account for that expertise. Um, many immunologists for example, went to international institutions and are world-class recognized people, but not all are. So I think we have to take into account uh, the actual documented expertise that people have and adjust the uh, volume on the radio according to how much authority is actually uh, possessed by an individual. I think there's a lot of people who liked to get out onto the radio and provide advice, but we, you know, and that's all very admirable wanting to help out, but I think we really have to pay attention to actual documented objective expertise and then listen very, very closely to what the science says. But I would say, and again, media is very, uh, especially Irish media is very, very much polarized to a small group of people who they go to as if, as if that was the science. Science is a debate. It's not a, it's not a book that you can go to. And I think that's really important to, um, to, 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 to develop as we try to communicate between the academic uh, literature, if you like, the published work and the, uh, the exposure of the public to science. There's an important role for the media there, and I think they need to up their game significantly. Yeah, I think I think the the volume in which the uh, the news the news readers are are making these statements is important, but I think volume is a really important point with regard to the uh, the science as well, because as as you correctly point out, in many cases there's there's a justifiable debate about the the ins and outs of of different processes, but in many cases you might have a situation where there's 99 papers in support of one idea versus one paper that happens to be published that that challenges that idea, and and, and the volume is is important in that regard. They shouldn't necessarily be given the same the same credence or the same same airspace in, in that regard. Absolutely, and and I think the media can 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 fudge this up sometimes by by making it appear that, that it's a 50-50 argument, whereas in fact, quite often, uh, and I do see the vaccinations for COVID-19 as a good example here, the overwhelming evidence is that this is a safe, effective, life-saving approach. Um, you will find evidence for anything anywhere, but if it's a thousand to one, then that has to be clearly stated. So Cormac, I'd just like to learn a little bit about more a bit more about you as a as a person and and, and some of your interests. So, so I, I understand that you uh, you have a, a more than passing interest in uh, in music. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that, or do you feel like if you weren't a scientist in in a, in another life that you would be a, a country star or a rock star or a, 
a Bob Dylan-esque type person. Well, actually, on you've uncovered a little uh, a little truth here. The fact is, I'm not actually primarily a scientist. That's just my day job. That's just what I do to earn earn a book. Um, I'm Illusion. actually uh, a bona fide rock star. We've been um, playing music live uh, uh, with bands for the as long as I've as long as I can remember. Um, we're just waiting for the breakthrough. Um, it's been a long time coming, just short of 25 years now. But I know that uh, that breakthrough album is just around the corner. So. Um, uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that uh, that that fate will will see my uh, career go in the right trajectory. Uh, but yes, it's 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 a, it's a little known fact that I am in fact a a, a bona fide musician uh, before a scientist. So how did you how did you get into this? So obviously you're you're a rock star masquerading in a in a professor's body. So do you, do you I, ever I, glo global rock star is actually what I like to refer to myself as? If that's okay, <laughs> don't, I don't want you to get the false impression. This is just a local thing. Global. Okay, so seeing as our previous topic was uh, was on truth, I'm gonna I'm gonna press you for some examples to to prove that you are in fact uh, have a have a global presence. So no, have no, you no, played outside of talking, the island I, of Ireland? I was referring to science in the previous argument. I, I think <laughs> when it comes to uh, when it comes to inflating one's own um, fragile musical ego, then uh, you can say you know all bets are off the table. <laughs> it, it is it is true to say that you have uh, picked up a guitar and a microphone uh, in in multiple countries over the years, sometimes associated with work and uh, sometimes not so. So tell us a little bit about that. It's, it's true. It is true. So so during my postdoc when I was in Boston, I actually had a proper band uh, um, uh, called Grass Cowboy. And in fact, if anybody wants to check it out on, on Spotify, we actually made a CD, which which uh, this is probably the pinnacle of, 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 of my musical career because we actually wrote original songs and released a CD, which was quite, quite good. But uh, uh, I discovered pretty quickly that uh, you know a, a, a career in music is not an easy thing to uh, uh, to attain, and you better really like your bandmates because they're going to be stuck in a truck driving around the states, uh, city to city, with them. Um, subsequently, I did get together with a group of um, uh, physiologists. Actually, they're all scattered from around largely the United States. Uh, and when we all go to conferences together, we get together and uh, and and play. We're called GI distress, which stands for gastrointestinal distress, uh, which is a, a reference to a, it's, it's a rather not a very obscure, rock and roll title. <laughs> it's, it's a rather obscure and quite obnoxious gastrointestinal complaint. Believe me, don't don't, don't I don't recommend anybody Google's GI distress videos. Um, apart from the band, of course, because uh, we do have some videos on online which. Uh, we're taking that. Uh, uh, we we always try to organize a gig when we we go to these conferences, and usually it's great fun, and you've got kind of a captured audience, so you get to play rock star for the night. So, so, so this this is this has been sort of a a passion of yours, so going to the meetings, attending the science, and then in the in the social social settings of the evenings, having the opportunity to go and uh, I won't say let your alter ego shine because we, it's the alter ego we're seeing at the moment. The real the real the real ego is 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 coming out on on the stage and and going and performing. But it, it's probably a pretty useful networking tool as well for for individuals well, who happen to have the talent of music as well as science. <laughs> I would never have seen it in such callous, cold terms that I would see this as a networking event, but it certainly does get you, uh, get you some attention along the way. Um, you know, one of the most, one of the most uh, important things that my English teacher, Joe Kennedy, way, way back in school, he's the first guy who taught me how to play guitar. Uh, he said, you know, you'll never leave a party alone if you can play guitar, um, which is probably quite... <laughs> <laughs> Quite a, a 1980s, 1970s slash 80s uh, uh, thing to say, but but 
It definitely helps in, in your social interactions. Fantastic, fantastic. So, have, have you got have you got anything you'd like to to share with us of a of a musical well, I genre? I wasn't going to... to do this. I really wasn't because I don't like to. Um, you know, I don't want to. I want to take any platform, any opportunity, just to just to apply my trade. You know, and this is a scientific discussion. So, unless I was like maybe like pushed in that direction we could, we could we could possibly twist twist your arm i mean the the, the shameless plug for grass okay, well, we, we heard earlier on uh sort of <laughs> uh, cast some doubt on the on the on the coyness in which you're accepting this invitation so okay well, well, well if you insist I, i'll I, go I against insist. i'll go against I'm, my my modest my musical modesty and say okay i i do actually have a song that i, I i've recently penned which is um which is really about uh, trying to come to terms with the uh, horrific situations we've all found ourselves in, both psychologically and socially and medically in the last uh, uh, 12 to 15 months now in terms of this pandemic. So uh, I thought that the year 2020, uh, uh, basket case as it was for, for most of us, deserved a song of its own. I'm quite surprised to find out that this was the first song dedicated to 2020, uh, at least that I could come across. Um, and uh, it, it's sort of uh, uh, the frustrations of a year channeled through the art form of blues music, if you can uh, imagine such a thing. So uh, with your permission, Owen, I'll, I'll, I'll sign out with a, uh, a version of 2020 blues. I had to update it because 2021 hasn't been so much better so far, but, um, <laughs> but uh, 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 I'm, I'm happy to play out with that if that's, if that's uh, okay. I, I, I think our, reader, our listeners would, would love to hear that, Cormac. Okay. Well, like I said, this is Booterstown Blues uh, uh, style, it's sort of a kind of a South County Dublin Irish blues. <laughs> Very simple. But um, this is called 2020 Blues. I want to tell you about a year so bad it would take shine off your shoes it would suck the lifeblood from your bones and it would sure give you the blues I'm talking 2020 Empty classroom, empty time, 2020. I want to talk about a year so dark it would make your toenails curl. COVID, Brexit, Putin and Trump in a dance that chilled the world. I'm talking 2020. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. 
A fantastic way to play us out. Global rock star and part-time professor of cellular physiology, Cormac Taylor. It's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. It's been a pleasure, Owen. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the UCD Conway Institute Class Acts podcast. A big thank you to the Conway Institute researchers for sharing their stories and Dr. Owen Cummins for chatting with them. Subscribe and follow UCD Conway Institute wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.